Hi gang, William Clavon here, back with my second episode of Thursdays, a podcast that celebrates, illuminates, activates, investigates, navigates, and sometimes even masticates our collective memories of the 1980s. Yes, I said masticates, as in chews up, followed perhaps by expectorates. Okay, I'll move on. You'll hear me say this many times on this podcast, mark my words. The 80s were the golden age of television and movies. Those of us who came of age during that decade, we were expanding our horizons, watching the Jeffersons and Hill Street Blues, St. Elsewhere, 30-something, Moonlighting, Star Trek The Next Generation, The Cosby Show. We were in movie theaters or the living rooms of a good friend whose family could afford a VCR, trying to decide if greed was, in fact, good. If we were, or were not, afraid of no ghosts. If we were too old for this shit. If the Goonies were good enough. Or if we agreed that Ferris Bueller was a righteous dude. Spoiler alert, he was. My guest today on Thursdays was in the thick of it all. She's an Emmy-nominated actor who has held the screen alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny Glover, Patrick Stewart, LeVar Burton, Daryl Hannah. The list is long. She's also a journalist who helped expose some of the criminal behavior and untoward activities in the early days of the Me Too movement. And more recently, and this is how we became acquainted, in 2015, she founded Drive-By Do-Gooders in Los Angeles, a nonprofit which provides basic human necessities to those living in downtown Los Angeles and the homeless encampments around the city, particularly the elderly and disabled and their pets. She's also the very first sponsor of the Third Ladies podcast and someone who has always been incredibly supportive, so generous with her love and time. Folks, Alicia Nath. Oh my gosh, I'm the first? That's that's the first. (laughs) So I'm popping your cherry, Bill. Is that what's happening? Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, you are somebody that I have, uh, I don't feel like I, we haven't known each other, known each other for a long time. But, but we I have, yeah. Forever. Through uh, social media, yeah, but we've been close. Yes. I get you and you get me, so that's great. Before we jump into the good stuff, I have three quick sort of Coke or Pepsi questions. Don't think too much about these. Okay. But other than your own work, what is your favorite 80s movie? Let's see. <laughs> it really wasn't one of those Breakfast Club, John Hughes movies. And it wasn't really, I hate to say it because I was in a lot of sci-fi stuff. It wasn't one of those. What was my favorite 80s movie? All right. Let me think about it. Let's go on. Okay. Second question then, along similar lines, favorite 80s television show. Oh, God. Um, well, the Jeffersons, Sanford and Son. All of the the ones that were shot on like video, like live video, and there was, it was just kind of messy and you know slow editing. I uh, loved that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, last of the three questions, we can always circle back to favorite movie. Last one: favorite eighties song or band? Who were you listening to? There's two, um, and they're both not in favor at the moment, but um, Michael Jackson. Anything by Michael Jackson, because it was dance music, man. And then maybe whatever was funk. I was not like new wave. I wasn't, you know, the B-52s. I, I didn't. I mean, 
I didn't even really like the clothes. Now, I love the 80s politics and sexuality and liberalism, but I didn't like the fashion. And I wasn't crazy about that whole new wave sound. I just sure. didn't. I wanted funk. I like to dance. Right, right. To make, so it was Donna Summers who I was oh thinking God. about. Oh, sure. He Look was such a huge influence. influence. Yeah. Michael Jackson and Donna Summer, they both kind of fell out of favor, but oh. that, that was my 80s music. I still don't know about 80s films. Oh, I do know. I was so into foreign film, and I still am. And anything French, anything Italian, okay. anything overseas, anything German. So uh, during the 80s, I just, I didn't like film. It wasn't like my style. It was it was very bland and commercial and cute and, and kind of what we're returning to, unfortunately. Yeah. Like the 70s were kind of gritty and, and different and, and, you know, pushed the lines. And the 90s did that, too. Right. And now we're, we're back to, you know, fairyland and everybody's getting canceled for saying anything. Cinema Paradiso. Um, yes. Oh, I love that film. That is top of my list. And I will tell you. That was the movie my wife and I were going to see on our first date. Um, I, I swear. Uh, and I, I planned a whole evening, an Italian evening. We went to a wonderful little Italian restaurant on Taylor Street in Chicago called um, Florence. And then I was going to take her down to the Arts Theater on Michigan Avenue to see Cinema Paradiso. We wound up talking for so long over dinner, we missed the movie. Missed the movie. Oh, God. But that doesn't matter. Oh, how romantic are you, Billiam? Oh, my God. No. Um, that well, would be a perfect way to hook me in, by the way. So. I had a willing co-conspirator uh, in her. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And and I worked oh. in a video store, which is how she and I met. Oh. And, and one of the most intriguing things about her was she only rented foreign films. Um, yeah. And that was That's definitely it was outside of my experience. And so I thought, she kind of opened up your zeitgeist. Yes. I yeah. thought, oh, she's brilliant. Uh, she's not just beautiful, but she's brilliant and she has an exquisite taste. And if I take her on a date, I'm going to have to like really step, step up. It up baby. Yeah. 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 So it was it buns for this stage. Right. It wasn't until months later when Cinema Paradiso came out on video that we finally actually saw it. And by that time we were hopelessly in love and, and it was wonderful. <laughs> um, but so I, I want to hear more about you though. I want to hear about, you know, how you got your start in acting in particular. Did you grow up in a, a, a house that was artistic and 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 focused on fine arts. Like, what was it that called you to the profession to begin with? That's, you know, that's a good question. I've never been asked that one before. I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada, so I'm a little old. So, um, my dad was in the hotel business. So, the '60s and '70s, um, my little brother and I. My dad was a a, a PR director mm. and advertising director for different hotels. And at okay. that point, they would create, you know, an entire campaigns for whoever was coming in, whether sure. it was Barbara Streisand or Elvis or Tom Jones or the Rat Pack or Dean Martin or whoever. So we got to see, I mean, I saw Elvis maybe 50 times. I, I just all we got to go all around the strip. And there was like one little moment now that you're saying that, Bill, where my little brother and I would um, have summer camp running around the International Hotel, which is now the Hilton, and I think it's now something else. And the, my mom would drop us off because my dad worked there, and we had the run of the hotel, and we would go backstage 
to the big showroom and there was these curtains and my little brother and I, and I kind of look out in the curtain. We kind of stand up on the stage. I mean, Bill Cosby was there, Tina Turner, everybody. And it was like, there was nothing there. It's like, you know, 10 a.m. or something. Yeah. But there was something. Like, I loved it. Then in that same hotel, they had um, a smaller theater called the Legitimate Theater. And they bought, brought in your good man, Charlie Brown, and Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar. And all of these great plays that were kind of like moving around. So before Cirque du Soleil happened, it was actually real theater at yeah. that hotel. And we totally had the run of those. I would sit and watch all of them so often that I'd come home and perform them in the living room. I never really thought about this, Bill. This is like a therapy session. <laughs> I was so um, impressed and so inspired as such a young kid. We're talking prior to like nine, 10 years old. that I, I did all of Jesus Christ Superstar in a small edited version. And I even did it on stage for my dad who came out of his executive office and sat in the chairs in the legitimate theater. And the performers, the kids who live there, kind of came out and I am doing like a medley of all of Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh my God. You were amazed. And I was like, you really? So then I would take it to my Catholic school and, and I would cast all my kid friends like, and we'd have props and we'd spend the, like the lunch hour, you know, and I'd be the director. And then if you weren't good, I'll also take your role. So now I'm the director and the performer. It's already that person. Oh my God. We, we got good. And so at some point, some nun, cause it was Catholic said, you know, all right, go ahead and show it to the class. And we were so good that they let us actually do a bus and truck tours from first to eighth grade all the way through. We did a good man, Charlie Brown. We did hair and we did Jesus Christ Superstar. So I was already deep in it. So, but it's still Las Vegas. So, and then the Carol Burnett show, them singing and dancing and the costumes and the humor, it just all, you know, fascinated me. I had no idea of how to get from Vegas to LA. But then my dad worked for Hilton. So a couple of times, I'm very young. I got to be taken out of school mm. and put on the little plane, that little tiny plane. And we went into some office that looked up at the Hollywood Hills and it was green. And I went, I could never go back. And I'm literally like nine or 10 or 11. I have to find a way to escape Vegas mm. to come here. This is it. This is it. There's something about this. So yeah. cut to, um, you know, I had a lot of uh, um, failures in high school. Hmm. My first freshman year, I tried out for the cheerleaders, and I think I'm a great dancer. And I tried out for the song leaders, and I think I'm a great song leader. And I tried out for the band and the singing choir. So I think I'm, like, crazy talented. And I try out for Sweet Charity. And I was given smaller roles. I'm like, no. I don't think you get. No, I'm not going to. I'm going to quit. I'm not going to take these. Oh. I don't This is something that only you and my therapist know. But it's like I was amazed that people weren't seeing my talent. But it started there. I, here's, here's why I wasn't doing well in high school. I was pushing my own boundaries. I was trying too hard. I was doing steps that were beyond my, you know, perfection. 
My voice was trying to hit notes that were beyond what I could do at that moment. So I didn't do that well. So it's my junior year uh, summer. And I beg my dad to let me stay with my aunt in the valley on Victory and Vineland in North Hollywood and let me take from this dance teacher that I'd learned about in Vegas. He was a great dance teacher and all the strippers would come in at 4 p.m. and do ballet. And I mean, it was literally uh, and all the showgirls. And they talked about this one teacher, Jaime Rogers, Mm -hmm. and he's in L.A. And he was in um, West Side Story, the original West Side Story. And he was one of the Jerome Robbins boys. So I was like, can I stay at at my dad's, you know, spare room? And so I did. And I took classes every single day with this Jaime Rogers guy. When you're young, you don't think you, you know, you don't think there's no's. You don't yeah. think there's a whole lot of no's. Now it's like somebody <laughs> says no or something and I'll tell them to fuck off. But still, back then, it was just, there were no no's. So I studied with Jaime Rogers. And before you know it, I got on to the series Fame and danced on that series and acted on that series. And then from there, I kind of realized, geez, you know, there was an agent that liked me that I could be, because they actually let me act as one of the dancers. I was in a dance troupe and I got more and more acting parts. I was like, maybe, you know, 60 changements at 6 a.m. is not the way to have a long, long career. And I talked to my dad and I said, I want to be a choreographer. And he said, "Uh, that's not, that's... There's, the span of that is not going to be great. So uh, I decided to pursue acting. And that happened really quick. So I left fame as an actor and dancer. And I got on a couple of soap operas, General Hospital, Young and Restless. And then I got some really big plays. I was really smart to always stay in class. Yeah. Always study. Always stay in class. I don't know how you become a good actor just by watching TV. Or thinking you show up on the set and learn. Now, on-the-job experience is really important. I delayed my career until I was in my mid to late 30s. I mean, as far as college. But So that's really, really important. But uh, I I was so much in the mix of it that I wanted to keep my game going. So I was always in plays. I was always in an acting class. And I really got to, through the 80s, make a living. For yeah. 10 years, I'm like vested in SAG. Now, here's why it's so surprising to people who might be listening now is that I'm not white. I don't look like you. Ethnic was not in. And I can't emphasize that enough. I was always uh, relegated, not even, you know, didn't get up for and be auditioning for the lead girl. I was yeah. immediately relegated to the runaways the suicide girls, the drug addicts, the prostitutes constantly, the maid. So anyone who was dark would, and and I I was able to book those. So I got a lot of fun TV, you know, Hunter, St. Elsewhere, even Star Trek, you know, all of those. I mean, there were tons of them. I, you know, when I go back and look at my resume in the eighties, I I was booking. Okay. But I didn't make that leap. Yeah. I didn't make that leap to like, Now I can be, you know, the, not the girl next door with her, you know, Tourette syndrome or something, but actually the girl, the lead in that TV movie or something. And it wasn't happening in the 80s. 
I could play Italian, Jewish, Mexican, Spanish, um, anything but the, what they were looking for, which was white, which was crushing for me because that would be the feedback. I, oh. I got nominated for that Emmy. It was an after-school special, and I did pretty good at it. I didn't get it, but I got a really good agent. And that entire year, because of that like Emmy nomination, I got put up for all the good things that were out there, yeah. you know, TVs and movies. And I was against like Jamie Gertz and a couple of other. And honestly, what happened, Bill, is I started to choke. There was I felt so much pressure sure. and I felt so much rejection through the 80s because I wasn't, you know, good enough, smart enough. People don't like me, oh. <laughs> oh. you know. I mean, I I wasn't white. I didn't, I wasn't tall, you know, boobs. Luckily boobs weren't in, in the eighties, but I just, I didn't have whatever it took to be, you know, uh, a Sharon Stone or whatever those, that look yeah, was yeah. so seriously in it. They were called it all American. So my agents would give me feedback like, no, it was between you and the other person. You didn't get it. You know, it's screen test for all this stuff. And it was like, Give me feedback. I can get better. I can go to my acting class. And right. it's like, yeah, they just went another way. And I was, I heard that all the time. What do you mean they went another way? What way? And of course, the way was white at the time. Right. It was not a fair playing ground as far as just the color of your skin back then. Now it's a completely different ballpark. But in the 80s, I was relegated to people with issues, drug yeah. addicts, prostitutes, runaways. So interesting that because that, I mean, and I, I say this a lot, the 80s were they planted seeds that bore fruit far later. Yes, yes. And, and that is exactly what I, I think about yeah. that that notion that, sorry, this is this is what sells this all American look um, when the reality was the audiences were not all white. They well, were. I mean, allegedly, I mean, the, 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 you know, the people, the Nielsen ratings is where a lot of it was. They were very right. heavy to Nielsen. There was no computers back then. So the demographic was, you know, 18 to 35 year old white yeah. men and women and right. housewives actually ruled the airwaves. That's where Lucy and some of those people were able to really kind of excel in some of this sitcoms and things like that back then. But. Yeah. It was all about your TVQ. That was the number. Oh, so was, interesting. I don't even know what that means. TVQ. And you had a rating of how popular you were by your TVQ. I just couldn't get popular enough. I wish. Wow. You know? Well, and, yeah. you, and you touched so many different series that, and movies for that matter, that were sort of seminal for the time. Um, yeah. Certainly in my experience uh, growing up at that time. Um, I mean, I, Anybody listening to the podcast is going to know I'm a Star Trek fan. Um, in fact, though, I, when I first encountered you as part of Drive By Do Gooders, I didn't know that you'd been on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Uh, that was just like a, a the most pleasant surprise. Uh, but uh, but you know, and Star Trek was supposedly known for being that that more diverse right. view of the world, right from the original right. series. Um, and Next Generation, this view. Yeah, that I mean, they had Whoopi Goldberg and, you know, the, yes, they had. In fact, they had a, a, a someone who was gold in color. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, they were 
They were pretty, they were different. So this is the mid eighties Star Trek. I think it was on the second season. Um, they, they, uh, wrote me in for a couple of episodes. They were the last episode of the second season. When I got the sides, which is a piece of a script to read for the casting director, who's a huge casting director at Paramount at the time. Um, the character was written as Sonia Sussman. They wanted her to be a nice Jewish girl. Sussman. Okay. So when I got to the set, it was like Sonia Gomez. I was like, all right, either one. I can play a Jew or a Mexican. I just can't play the you know, white girl. I got to meet LeVar Burton. Fucking amazing. Yeah. Um, we rehearsed. And I, I got to be walked into his trailer and his trailer was like a, a, like, I don't know, like an ashram, like a yoga studio. There's incense burning and, you know, drapes on the walls and candles and it smelled great. And there's pillows. It was absolutely amazing. Um, it was just, you walked into like this magical kingdom and he didn't have the, that visor on. So we rehearsed all of our scenes because most of my scenes were with him. And we rehearsed a couple of times and it was so fun because he really connects. Yeah. He was like one of the best actors I'd worked with. And I kind of knew the difference. I really do know the difference between somebody who's acting and bullshitting and somebody who's actually really feeling right. it. He was totally feeling it. So it was so fun. And then we go to the set and I'm, you know, young, I'm in my early twenties, mid twenties. And then they, they put the thing on. And I was like, oh, shit, oh. I don't get to see his eyes. And it was like, we rehearsed with his eyes. Anyway, it was, it, it, I, that was smart of him because I, you know, we got to really get the connection going and he yeah. wanted to make every scene as good as he could make it. So that was, that, that turned out to be kind of fabulous. So I did a couple of episodes uh Q and Samaritan snare I think I don't know which one comes first or last but they were at the end of seasons two go ahead and Q who Q who in uh in uh introduced us to the board which are yes. a huge part of yes, Trek, yes. Uh, to this day um yeah, yeah. sadly <laughs> if I could have just been a Borg adjacent I probably would be rich right now um, so, uh, it was the end of that season. I forget what year and the writer's strike, another writer's strike hit. They threw out a little carrot, a little branch saying, you may come back next season as Jordy's love interest. Huh. And I was like, yeah, what? Um, so I was really hoping that that would happen because in the canon, in the original Star Trek canon, he falls so in love with a character. I don't know if it was even Sonia, probably might have been, that he's willing to do this life threatening surgery to take his visor off and get surgery so that he can see the love of his life. He's so in love with quote unquote me. And they wrote me as comic relief. I'm like bumbling, you know, I'm a bumbling, you know, ensign in engineering. I'm spilling hot chocolate all, all over Picard. You know, Jordy and I are walking down the hallway and he's, you know, I'm like, I want to be a big part of this. It seems like. So when it came to turning me into a love interest, the feedback from the new writers was that Jordy would never fall in love with somebody like you. And I was like, but that's the way you wrote it. 
So it had nothing to do with me, but I did not get to continue on because, and I don't know, I don't think he ever ended up. I think they killed that storyline. They did. Um, and, and by the way, you, you, the two of you had great chemistry. I oh. thought. Um, and I, I've, I've always, because I think I've heard you mention that before, that notion that it could have gone this direction. Right. And it would have been wonderful. Um, and I, I think that um, that was the one thing about Jordy that I, I always sort of ached for for him as a character was he was so soulful. He, he never found love. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I do. I also know that you got to reprise your role, but as a captain uh, oh, that's true. in Star Trek Lower Deck. So at least we know that Ensign Sonia Gomez didn't shoot herself in the foot. Ultimately, she made her way up to captain. Yeah, but dude, it took me 30 years to get a promotion. What the fuck? Yeah, it's a good so point. now I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm the captain of the Archimedes on Lower Decks. What couldn't I have been in any of the uh, anything? Anyway, I, I'm glad to have done it. It was fun to watch them animate me because they gave me more boobs and hips than I actually do. <laughs> you know, well, it was a delight to to hear your voice and see your character come back. And I think I I reached out to you right after I saw that episode and I said, this was actually the best episode of the season. And that wasn't- Oh, that's so cool. And, and that's that what they said about Q-Who and Samaritan School- Snare. The only problem is when I read the script for uh, Lowered X, I went, I'm just a plot line to move the plot line on. I'm not gonna, it wasn't meant for me to have uh, my own plot, my own, my own story. I was just moving the plot forward. Sure. So, sure. you know, and it was during COVID. So it, this is kind of fun. Do you want me to tell you this story Please. about how I voiced over it? I would love to hear it. Okay. So I think this is in like November, December of 2020 or 21. It was just COVID was going on and on and on. I think it was 2021. And I get called that I got reprised. And I'm like, well, it took you so long, you know, and I want a really big raise. You know, I was getting 35 cents an hour. So it's now it's going to be 2 billion. Yeah, right. anyway, I go down to a set and it's all COVIDy, COVIDy, COVIDy. It, um, it was a sound studio in the Valley on Ventura Boulevard. And you have to show all your tests. Mm-hmm. You have to actually show like the vaccine points on your arms. You're masked up. You're suited up. So I walked in and I showed up COVID free. And I walk in and there's a microphone and my script. The microphone is covered. There's no producers or directors in the room. Usually there's like a panel of people who want to give you direction. There's an engineer behind glass who's going to, you know, pull all the triggers. But the producers and directors and everybody who had a hand in anything to say about anything were on these giant screens. That alone was like Star Trek. I'm looking at like eight screens of heads on Zoom during COVID giving me direction. And I'm at the microphone and I have to kind of say my lines like, uh, you know, all right, that's enough existential dread. Let's get back to work. And they're like, oh, cut. And then head number six went, could you do that with more of this? Head number three would go, yeah. Could you do it more like this? So you, I mean, you navigated the the 80s into, into the 90s a bit, but then- but then you pivoted. You decide. You you did what what many people are afraid to do. You decided I to left. change careers. I yeah. left the business. That was 
that was really traumatic because I was young. Um, so I, you know, I was pretty much a surviving actor from 18 to 28 to 30 years old, uh, you know, through the eighties uh, and early nineties. And then I really took a look at the fact that I wasn't getting ahead. You know, I got this Emmy nomination. I had gotten great agents. I was up for everything I'd ever want to be up for. And I wasn't getting that either. And I was choking and I knew it. I was not doing well at auditions. And then my agents dropped me. So at that point I went, "Um, do I want to start from scratch and beg up and get another agent? It just seemed so defeating. And I was smart enough to have already taken a couple of classes at the community college here, Santa Monica College. And I just went, maybe I should like get an education for fuck's sake. I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm 30 and I don't know, you know, 31. They don't, they're not, if they miss me, they'll call me. They're not missing me right now. So uh, my boyfriend at the time um, got a job to move to Portland and I went to school full time in Portland and really studied and then we moved to Florida and I found out what I was good at through college aside from acting which was writing because it doesn't matter what you look like it doesn't matter you know what you sound like it doesn't matter if your nails are done or if your boobs are big or your stomach is flat if you can put a sentence together if you can actually write and I really liked essay writing in college which led led to journalism, which led to news writing, which is writing facts. I wasn't great at making stuff up. Mm-hmm. So I, it turned out I had an aptitude. I didn't even know I had an aptitude for news. So I became a news reporter. I did really well in Florida, worked at the Sun Sentinel, in the Palm Beach Post, and then the Miami Herald. Yeah. And then I really wanted to come home back to L.A., Uh, so I had to go undercover to get the kind of money I wanted and the kind of jobs I wanted. And it was to be an undercover investigative reporter for the entertainment business. And I, I knew the ins and outs of that. And I knew journalism now. And so I was kind of a perfect fit. I was really able to get my numbers up as far as the amount I wanted per year. I was able to buy a house. I was able to retire and from then, you know, I was able to kind of use my free time as I have now, you know, as being a little bit of a philanthropist, like like now go out and help because I'm such a consumer. I've gotten such good luck, even though it wasn't the kind of luck. I mean, I'd love to be a Nicole Kidman or whatever, you know, it, you know, the, the cards didn't play that way. But I'm in a first world country. I have lots of flushing toilets. I have sun coming in. I have weather control. I live near the beach. I've got motorcycles. I've got cars. I own my home. This is anything I'd ever complain about is so first world, mm. you know. So st- starting a, a, a charity to help the poor to me was like a no brainer. It's like recycling or paying your taxes. It's not even something that I need to step out of myself to do. We should give frigging back. I take and take and eat and eat and digest and digest, collect and collect. So um, I just noticed from doing, you know, this kind of stuff all the time, driving around in L.A., you know, commuting, you see a homeless person on the street and they look like my parents or my grandparents, whatever I had in my car, I'd give it to them. 
And it kind of organically happened from there. Like if if I drive by and I can do good, I'll do it. I'm not going to like, you know, make an illegal U-turn, but it evolved into now a full-fledged, you know, legitimate 501c3 where every week we go out and we give survival supplies to 150 elderly and disabled homeless adults. So what, what we do is we create survival supply bags with water, wipes, toothpaste, toothbrush, socks, soap, shampoo, just a, a myriad of everything, toilet paper that they would need for the week to survival supplies. Yeah. So it's like we're triage. We go out, drive by, and we do good from our car windows like an ice cream truck. We just go and hand out stuff on the outskirts of Skid Row where more of the disabled and elderly live, and that's almost primarily black, or just people really down on their luck. I mean, by the time you get to Skid Row LA, you know, you're not shooting up dope, you're not stealing Amazon packages, you're not stealing people's bikes. You've lived there for a while. It's the last stop for somebody who's fallen out of the system. They're like invisible people. They're like the forgotten people. And then it turns out they also have pets. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm such a pet crazy, insane person. You know, three dogs, six bunnies, and that's just a, on a good day. You know, we we see that pets for our elderly and disabled homeless mean security, love, something to wake up for, right. uh, just you know to care for all of that. So, right. not only do we help them with survival supplies like the basics, but we help their dogs too. Kid Row has like 10,000 people in a 50 square block. There's one water fountain, about four bathrooms, about six showers. So it's, it's not really functional. It's very, very, very third world. I mean, compared to, I come seven miles west to my house at the beach. It's like this exists right around the corner right seven miles away so it's it's not like a refugee camp in syria it's it's pretty serious and it goes neglected because they don't complain they just live there i never thought about that that's what it is they don't complain they don't want more they've accepted their fate they just live there and die there so you know the government and the money sources go elsewhere to the screaming people you know the squeaky wheel who's like fill in my pothole or give me a better stoplight here. And the homeless population in Skid Row specifically I'm talking about really go unnoticed and neglected. I've gone down there every week for more than 10 years. Now we meet the same folks. They're on alleged uh, lists to get housing. Sometimes they will get housing at uh, these temporary housing, like at a hotel and then if they pass muster, they'll get more better housing and they end up right back on the street. That's where their friends are. That's where their community is. That's where their people are. And that's, you know, I'm not going to argue against the level of drug addiction and alcoholism and mental illness mm-hmm. and all that comes with that when, especially when you get old, my God, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a hopeless case, but it's not a case where a lot of money's getting thrown around. But we just go down there, me with my teenagers who are doing community service for high school. 
We yep. just drive by and do good. They love us. We're yeah. friendly. We jump out of the car and give them water if we need to. We help their dogs and pets. We've got a whole supply of stuff. The only thing we don't really do, and we do a whole lot of clothes and backpacks and stuff, is we can't really deliver food. We're not, we're not, you know, licensed for that. So, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. I love that that's how we met. And don't you think that's exactly what's part of this, what Gene Roddenberry, if you look at the bigger picture, it's the message. It's inclusion. It's helping others. I I think there's a a line from the original Star Trek series. Uh, William Shatner, Captain Kirk is talking to somebody and he says, and he's in, it's a time travel episode. So he's in the past and he tells, uh, it's Joan Collins actually in the episode. He tells her, he said, you know, in the future, um, we, the phrase that we use often is let me help. Oh. And I, that stuck with, that stuck with me my whole right. life. And, right. um, and I think that, I think that that's fundamentally you, so you're and you're not just the thing is what I heard you saying about your yes you're giving them um, desperately needed supplies but they have a relationship with you too yeah they yeah. know you and they yeah. they know and they trust you and, and I know and, all their stories I know their life experience you know if I were qualified to get them housing or do more I would but what we have to do you know to keep my own sanity is let me help every week let me help triage. Here's some supplies and then we'll come back next week. And what's going on with you? You have some gout. We'll bring you some medicine. Your dog has a, has a thing in his paw. We'll get you a vet. So that's kind of what drive by do gooders does. We just drive by do good. We don't solve the homeless problem. We just, you know, I guess that's that's the other thing that really uh, drew me to this is that it's very easy to get caught up in saying, I can't fix the, the systemic issues. I'm one. But this is not about that. This is about, but there are things that you can do right now, right here. Um, It it doesn't fix the bigger issue, but my God. What I would say about that is if you, if you're on the train or on the bus or in a car, bring an extra protein bar or a a piece of string cheese or a bottle of water. Anybody can be a drive-by do-gooder. Just hand that out and you'll be supplied. you You'll be very surprised if somebody is acting a little bit mental and you go, hey, you want a bottle of water? They snap out of it every frigging time, Bill, and they'll take the gift. And then they might go back into their insanity. But helping makes us feel good. It makes them feel good. It creates some equilibrium, you know, for those of us who've been fortunate. And that's it. It's yeah. just so, so simple. If I can help, I will. Human dignity in and of itself and being able to just be a bridge because I know it's, like you said, the invisible people, easy to walk past or drive past and ignore, but the, the, they're human beings. I agree. Uh, it, it, it takes breaking a level of stigma that I think our teen volunteers try to do. So say you're in your car and you're in, I don't know, pick a state and you see a homeless person, it's really easy to just drive by. But if you were to stop just for a second and look in their eyes, just for a second, and you'll see maybe a sparkle, maybe there's something dead, maybe there's some pain, but they're a human friggin' being. And when they want a glass of water or a little protein bar, 
and a little smile, maybe a handshake, maybe even a hug. That makes such a huge difference in people's lives. And the giver too. It's called a helper's high. Mm -hmm. When, When you go out and you do tiny little helping, you get a dopamine hit in your head. And it, it really, it makes you want to do it more. I, I, I am so lucky to know you, Licia, and to have gotten to understand drive-by do-gooders and that mission. And I, and I love, I love all of the things that you've talked about, about your life and your career um, and just, and how you got where you are right now. And I, I, I appreciate you so, so much. I can't, I can't find the right words to say that. I, I did actually, there was one question I forgot to ask you, which is when you were in, in the heart of your uh, career in the 80s, who were your mentors? Who were the people that you looked up to, admired, um, that may have reached out to help uh, that you were connected to? That's, God, these are really good questions. Okay. So the first thing that would hit me would be my acting teachers or the director's in a play that I was in because directors on TV and movie aren't really interactive. They're just trying to move the camera, get the shot, you know, get the close up, get the, you know, the master shot. But yeah. Yeah. But if you're in a play and you have this, you, you're constantly working with the writer usually. And I learned very, very early on in acting class and it, it absorbed for me. I don't know if it absorbed for other people, you have to be beholden to the screenwriters, to the writer's words. Mm-hmm. That is the first concept, the writer's words, not anything else. So what is the writer's intent? And I would just become beholden to that. So when I was doing a play and the writer would come to this to the rehearsal and the director and writer would work together, if there was any comment that they wanted me to, if I wasn't reading something right, it was so glorifying for me to get enlightened by that. Yeah, it's, yeah. To me, it was it was paying homage to the script, to the written word, mm-hmm. not to my idea of how I can turn my head and get my close up or how I can deliver this line so that they can't cut away or that this this line will make me famous. You know, show me the money or something. It was to me, it was very, very authentic. And so those mentors were people who were the true artists, I guess. These are great questions, Bill. You know, well, the, the ground level, and even if they were not, you know, I'm talking ground level, they could be rich and famous, but they were in the mix trying to make a, a, a play better, trying to make a movie better with an interaction that was a group compilation of ideas. And I was always open to it. I was never that kind of ego that went, I have a better idea. You know, just want to die. Can't you just see that I know what I'm doing? <laughs> so wow. those would be those would be kind of the mentors in in the business anyway. Yeah. Uh, oh, and watching the top pros, always watching like the Danny Glovers and the Arnold Schwarzeneggers. You know, watch them work. And see how they operate within this huge dinosaur of a system that is so complicated. And there's so many moving parts. You know, we've got cameras, lights, technicians, you know, special effects, director, all these producers on top of the directors, like a halo of hate. <laughs> a halo of judgment about how the, how the money is going to flow down. Right. And watched how they would negotiate that 
that definitely had a big influence on me and made a, a, a difference on how I would go onto a set and operate in a scene or, you know, something. It was, you know, we're as an actor, you, you know, it's really hard unless you're at a top level, which I was not. You're kind of a, just a tiny little player. You're a cog in the big machine and you want to do what's told of you to do. Now, if you have a better idea, that's where it gets a little bit tricky. You have to find the right person to ask, can I change this line to his, to it? Or, you know, it, and it, it's like, then you hit against all these egos. You might not even to be able to make one little adjustment in the words or even the performance. I'd love to come back and we can do another interview in 10 years where I'm now, you know, running my own theater company or something where I can call the shots. But it's it's super important. <laughs> Well, so so is that what is that what's next? Is that something that you're thinking about starting your own theater company? Like, what's you've got Drive By Do Gooders, which is amazing. Um, what else do you want to fill your time with? Dogs and bunnies, of course. Ugh, I'm so <laughs> over my life right now. I'm you know a, a crazy Drive By Do Gooder, a, a philanthropist. Um, I take no money. We don't have any overhead. You know, I I exercise, I eat right, I wake up early, I do my thing, um, I post. Uh, you know, uh, creatively, I think the out outlet is creating posts for TikTok, Instagram, Facebook to keep that ball rolling, and we that's where I seem to get some attention and some of the funding. That's where you found me. Um, that's kind of fun, but that's a really good, challenging question. What do I, what would be the next step for Licia? Yeah. I could find the perfect man. You are perfect as you are, Licia. <laughs> perfect as you are. And if you got a guy who doesn't accept that, fuck him. Right? If he doesn't want to take me for Italian food in Cinema Paradiso, go. Yes. You, and you then we missed the movie because we're so in deep in conversation. Are you kidding me? You've you've now laid the the it's like the 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 bar. What was that bar we used to dance under? The limbo stick. The limbo stick. You've placed the limbo stick low. <laughs> so any guy who comes really has to, you know, it's not high anymore. It's not any cute guy who comes along. Wow. But yeah. You've, you you've, de- you've said it for me. You deserve the best. Everybody deserves the best. And you definitely deserve the best. I appreciate that. Meanwhile, we'll just drive by, do good. I look forward to you guys coming and staying and yes. going out in the field with us. Wait. That wait. would be so fun, wouldn't it, at some point? It would, it would be. All right. I've taken up so much of your time. And I'm oh, that's okay. so generous. And I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. And I'm so William. Um, I will say it again. I adore you and I absolutely love what you're doing in the world. Thank you for being such a good human. All right. Kisses. Bye. Bye, my friend. (laughs) Reinvention, my friends. Reinvention is the key. This conversation with Licia inspired me, reminded me that life is too short to get bogged down in the things that aren't working for us. It's okay to change course. Seek out new opportunities that will bring us joy. She is a great example of all you can accomplish throughout your life, no matter what curveballs life throws at you. What an amazing human. I'm lucky to have her in my life, and I am not alone. 
which reminds me, go to drivebydogooders.org and donate to help Licia and her team of do-gooders help as many people as possible bringing relief to those who need it most. And you too can be a drive-by do-gooder. Keep a few extra bottles of water, some granola bars, maybe even an extra blanket in your car. And when you see someone in need, just remember, it costs nothing to remind those in need that they are seen. All right, for this week I'm signing off, but I will be back soon to explore exactly why no one puts baby in the corner. More bees bee and ducks duck. Cheers, big ears. Cheers.